As we close out this series on the Trinity, um, we have structured this in four weeks. The first, we talked about God the Father. Next, we talked about the Son in Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about the Spirit, and Brandon gave a beautiful, impassioned word about the Lord's desire to embrace us through the presence of His Holy Spirit. Today, we will talk about the interconnected relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, today, the relationship. What does it mean that our God is three in one? What does it mean that he has always been active in loving relationship? In order to do that, I want to frame up a concept around relationship, particularly biblical relationship. And to do that, I think we have to go all the way back to the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. Let's look at the biblical story for loving diversity and the complexity that comes along with that. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. If you don't know, there's basically two creation stories in Genesis, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, the macro view of what God's doing, breathing life, planets, stars, mountains, humanity, and then Genesis 2, a zoom in of what that actually looked like, how he breathed life, formed it with his hands, saw that it was good, empowered it, gave names, and was fruitful to multiply. So let's look at Genesis chapter 2 and how this creation story begins. In Genesis 2, Verse 15 through 17, then we'll do 18 and 24. It reads like this. There's a flow. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, a place where heaven and earth were together. There he placed the man he had made. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And then let's jump to Genesis 3. This is now Eve talking with the serpent. She says, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. As we read these in order, I, I also skipped over some different parts in order to draw out a relational idea that's happening here. And reading them back to back like this, maybe even some themes or ideas stood out to you. The warning about eating from the tree and it bringing death is given to Adam, not Eve. It's given to the man, not the woman. She's not there when God gives him this command and this warning. She doesn't exist yet when God gives him this command and this warning in Genesis 2. But it's the woman who's communicating this to the serpent. And if you'll notice, she doesn't say it exactly the way God said it to Adam. She adds something into the command. It's kind of weird. Why would you add what God had said? God said to Adam, don't eat this or you would die. But she says, don't eat it or even touch it or else you will die. The touching it part wasn't a part of it. God said, I mean, you could probably 
bat around that fruit. Just don't eat it. But she adds it. What happened in this exchange? Somewhere between Adam receiving that information and Eve communicating it to someone else, it was distorted and it was moved. What God said changed. They added something which changed the essence of what God had said to them. The first thing when we talk about relationships, and I can hear this in churches all the time, particularly when we read scripture or when we're doing small groups or simply friendship in general, we see first here, other people are less trustworthy than just me and God. Other people aren't as trustworthy as my mind and my heart. Other people aren't as trustworthy as when God speaks to me. Adam communicated something to Eve and didn't communicate it in the accurate way that God told him to. She received or interpreted from him incorrect directions of what God had spoken. Wouldn't it be easier if God just spoke to each of us directly? If I never had to rely on somebody else telling me what God was speaking or somebody else teaching me how to understand his will, somebody else guiding me, if it was always just me and God, I could trust God, and I'm pretty sure I could trust myself, but in the very second chapter of Scripture, we already see evidence that in human relationships, they're less trustworthy than our direct relationship with God. Diversity and relationship means the message goes through changes. It's like the game of telephone. If you played it in elementary school and you place 10 people around a circle and one message and the message is God loves you and by the end the message is hot dogs are 2.99. You're like, where did it change? Who was it? Was it you, Ricky? You always change. We, it changes over time. We see a version of telephone that's just two people and the message changed. This is often why we'll say things like, I don't like reading other people's commentary on Scripture or their interpretation of it. I just trust my own and what the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. I don't know about pastors or church structures. I've seen a lot of manipulation and abuse. So I, I'm just going to, to go by my own instincts and by what I discern is the Holy Spirit speaking into me. Let's see it continue on. Genesis 3, now into verse 11. They eat the fruit. She passes the fruit to Adam. He eats the fruit. Their eyes are open. They become ashamed that they're nude. And, and then God comes and speaks to them. He says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. A powerful thing to me whenever I read this is how quickly everybody throws each other under the bus, like immediately. God is like, who told you you're naked? Adam's like, this woman did. She did it. And also you kind of did it because you made her and you kind of mucked this whole thing up and it was good. I like to actually think in this passage there is a part of Adam that is almost saying, this woman is the one who led me into this sin, and this woman you created and gave me led me into this sin, that there's a part of him that could be saying something a lot of us had said. God, it was better when it was just you and me, man. It was just the two of us, bro, and this was fine. We were hanging out. You were walking. I knew you. I was the human. 
I was the guy, the only one. I was the pinnacle of creation. Just me. I was doing great. I was naming a bunch of stuff. I said giraffe. That name was awesome. I was doing all this stuff. And it was working. And then you put this other person here, and she's messing everything up. I don't know why you did this. Why, why would you do this? This is complicating everything. It comes to our second truth about relationships, that other people are more complicated than just me and God. Not just do we perceive them as less trustworthy, but it's more complicated than just a relationship of me and God together. I think it's crucial that in Genesis 2, it's God that says it's not good for man to be alone. Because if it was just people, we'd be like, yes, it is. It's great. Being alone is awesome. Other people are weird, complicated, needy, deceitful. It's great being alone. Which is why God is the one who declares it. You need more than just your quiet time with me. You need more than just the scriptures in your hand. You need more than just a vibrant prayer habit. You are made for. You are incomplete without. You need other relationships in your life. But we would say to God, other people are complicated and it makes things slower. I get me. I get how I work and how I understand. The way I think is normal. Everyone else is abnormal. Other people are complicated and weird. They let you down. They tell you dinner is at 6, and then you show up at 6, and everybody showed up at 6.30, and so you have to make awkward conversation and pretend like you're helping in the kitchen. Other people will call you twice, and it seems like an emergency, and then you call them back 30 seconds later, and they don't answer, and then they text you like five hours later. This is what other people do. It's frustrating. They see things differently than us. They have different perceptions. They have different desires. I don't want to eat that. And they really do. And we have to learn to let go of our own selfish desires. We see in Genesis 3, continued on into verse 20 and 21. Then the man, Adam, this is after They've eaten the fruit. This is after they've been removed from the garden, after God has declared the consequences of their actions. He says, then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and for his wife. While we can see Adam's perception of Eve in this, well, we also could see Eve's perception of Adam in this. You were supposed to protect me, and I didn't hear the rules. You did, and you communicated them wrong to me, or you should have impressed this more on me or been here. There's a lot of pointing and blame that can happen, but I actually think the greatest disappointment here is for God. I made you in order to be here loving me. I gave you one rule about trusting me and surrendering to my will, and you refused to do that. I asked you to trust me as your guide, as your Lord, as your friend, and instead you've chosen yourself and rejected my plan for your life. I wanted to be in perfect relationship and communion with you, and now because of your sin and your broken nature, I can't. 
even a part of God projecting ahead, knowing the trajectory of the story and saying, because of your decision here, I now know I will have to place myself on a cross and bear the weight of all of your sins, decisions, and rebellion. I'll have to hold that. In this moment, God is realizing all of those relational pains. And yet, they said they feel shame over their nakedness, so he lovingly and caringly makes clothes for them. He sits and he crafts clothing. He says, you are struggling with this. I will make you clothes. And Adam himself, even afterwards, and all the pointing fingers, declares her name as Eve. This is the first time we see her name. And Eve means life, life itself. Even in the pain and the destruction we've shown to each other, the lack of trust, the complication, the sin and the hurt, I still am recognizing the beauty of who you are. You are life, and God is going to bring life into this world through you. I see what you can do that I cannot. I can't create life. You can, and I'm recognizing that, and the beauty of who you are in it. And in this story of Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, just this one and a half chapter arc, we have the entirety of what it means to be in relationship. It's both more complicated. It is. It's hard to trust other people. But the beauty of life comes from the relationships God has put around us and built us for. And as we're talking about a Trinitarian God, we know that this is because he has breathed his very life into us. He has made us in his image. And the God we've been talking about for three weeks is a relational actively interconnected God who has put that spark and desire into us as his image bearers. We are made for relationship. And sure, it's complicated and sure, it's painful, but it is the very life we are made for. In this chapter, we see that relationships are the singular place and environment for love. You can't love on your own. You can't even love out in nature. Self-love is a distortion of love. Love is made to be external and expressed and cared for another. Relationships and the complexity of them are the only place to experience and to give love. And so we see our first point, and I only have two today. The essence of God is relationship, and the essence of God is activity. Let's look at relationship first. God, as we have known, is one essence in three persons. He's one, but he's three, which means he is eternally and always been in relationship. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 are the definitive two verses about the Trinity and particularly its active nature. It's the baptism of Jesus and the beginning of his ministry. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see in this story all three of the persons of God active, moving, working, all three of them loving in different distinct ways, but all three of them expressing love towards the others. 
The son is loving the father in obedience. Immediately before this, he finds John out in the desert and he says, I want to be baptized. John says, no, I should be baptized by you. You are more holy than I am. And he says, this is the obedience to enter into God's righteousness. I am going to love my father by being obedient in how he has called me. And so I will be baptized as an expression of my love and trust in him. Jesus is loving by being obedient. The father is loving by literally auditorily declaring his love. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. I love him. Literally a voice from heaven booms this. The father declares his love over the son. And then the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and lands on Jesus in the form of a dove. This is pretty typical of each of the roles of the persons in the Godhead. The Father declaring love, Jesus expressing love through obedience, and the Holy Spirit being the activity of that love, coming down and embracing the Son. It is the most Trinitarian moment in all of Scripture. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit, the embracing activity of that love. And as the nature of God is loving relationship breathed into creation, it is our same nature to desire other persons to desire us. It's a very human, natural thing. I want other people to want me. I want to be wanted. I need to be needed. I want other people to care if I'm in the room or to care if I wake up the next morning, to care if I show up to the party, to care if I am there at dinner. I want someone to want me. It is an essence of who we are. To value people who value us. We have a hierarchy in our head. Don't look at anybody in the room, but we do, whether we acknowledge it or not, of people we care more about than other people. If you want to know who it is, just judge by who you text back the fastest. That's your hierarchy. Some of you are having existential crises now, but we have a hierarchy in our mind. And to us, those we value highly, it means the most when they value us highly. That is the essence of that romantic spark moment. Somebody you really place on a pedestal declaring to you that they place you on a pedestal and that magical moment of being like, this person I think is awesome, thinks I'm awesome, and that's awesome. This is a human nature, an essence of who we are. And this is why, as we saw in Genesis chapter 2 through 3, that relationship is a double-edged sword. To love in a fallen world is to be vulnerable. To love in a fallen world is to be hurt, to be disappointed, to be frustrated. It's just a part of it. Our world has fallen, sin is here, we're imperfect, oftentimes we're selfish, and to love someone else is to put your heart out there, and if you've lived long enough and loved long enough, you know that to love is also to be hurt. But to experience the love of our God is to see a loving relationship where trust is perfect and unbroken. To see a loving relationship where there's never a disappointment. To see a loving relationship where there is perfect unity in one walking step in step. And when we love in this world and it's broken, we can turn back to our heavenly father and see it unbroken and perfect and poured out on us by the Son. 
The Bible is a book on love. From the beginning to the end, it's a book on love, about love, how to love, and how to understand how deeply you are loved. That's the central theme of Scripture. A God who has loved us, so he made us. And that love was broken, hurt him, so he lovingly gave his son for us to restore back the relationship so we can be in loving relationship with him for eternity. Love is the essence of the book we read. It takes brokenness to love a broken world, and God shows us his brokenness. It takes grace to love an untrustworthy world, and God shows us his grace. It takes divine presence and peace that only Jesus provides to have peace while loving complicated, chaotic people. Jesus speaks to us, recorded in John 13, of how we are to be understood. He says, now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How will they know we're his disciples? By how loud our worship is? No. By how well we know our scriptures? No. By how well we can articulate complex doxology and theology about Christ? Nope. By how we love. Not even, this might be shocker, not even how we love those outside of the church. Jesus is talking about church, and he's saying they will know by how you love each other in this community, by how well you can show grace when somebody does something hurtful to you, by how well you can give up your own preference and desires so another person can have what they prefer and desire, how well you can be consistently there and present for them, They will know you are my disciples by how you love each other. But that reality for us, it sounds beautiful, and there's a lot of sermons you've heard like this, and you go, how do we do that? The reality is threefold for us. First, we are made by love and in the image of love, and it is in our nature to desire to give and receive love. That's a fact. Genesis 1.27, 1 John 4.8, that is the essence But two, we are fallen and twisted to turn that love inward on ourselves rather than outward towards others. Romans 3.23, Psalm 14.1. And then three, the community of the church is given the Holy Spirit to teach us, convict us, and empower us to love in ways we would otherwise be unable to do. John 16.8. 2 Timothy 1.7. This is the journey of the church. This is why the church exists. We exist so that our reality that's put in us to love, but throughout life is disappointed, is frustrated, and our hearts could tell us, all right, shut it down. Let's stop doing this. We'll love in tiny pieces and we'll love from a distance because number two, it's broken. But then in the church, the Holy Spirit dwells. In our relationships, the Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in this room, in this particular building. The Holy Spirit lives in this particular community. And the Holy Spirit is active and moving when this community is active and moving towards each other and with each other and together, hand in hand, for each other. The Holy Spirit is given so we can love unlike our broken natures. It's given so we can do more, be more, give more. Two, 
the essence of God is active. A three-in-one Trinitarian God is a God that is active. He's not static. He doesn't sit and watch us. He gets involved and he moves. He wasn't sitting for all eternity in some divine eternal sleep, unaware of what creation would do. And then, oh, creation idea came to him. So he put us into life and then he sat back and watched it happen. When we understand God as three in one, it means for all eternity, he was active with each other, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, loving each other, embracing each other, caring for each other. And from that loving embrace, they then spoke that love into existence that is you and me, that is this world around us, so that we could now be a part of that Godhead and that trinity of love that has existed for all eternity. And God didn't just breathe it and leave it be. We see it literally in the beginning of the story. Genesis 1-3, the father spoke creation into existence with his voice. He made human beings by his hands. He breathed into us his very breath. Our God as a Trinitarian God is an active moving God who gets involved with his creation and actively loves his creation. We see it in the Spirit. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit is hovering over the water. The Holy Spirit is moving and speaking and is bringing order to what is chaotic. Second verse of the Bible, the Spirit's present, moving amongst the chaos, bringing order to it. And we see it through the Son. John 1.3 speaks to us about what's happening in Genesis 1, and he says, through the Word, or through the Son, through Jesus, creation came to be. Our God is a God of activity, and in creation, He is interconnectedly, complexly involved, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He is involved and moving and working. You could put the third one up, too. I know I went out of order. God is not unmoved, as Greek philosopher Aristotle said, that God is an unmoved mover. He's unmoved by it, but he sets things in motion. Our God, as the scriptures show him, is a moved mover. He moves things because it's moved in his heart, and then he sees it moving, and it moves his heart again, and he gets active to move again. Our God is always moving and working. He walks in the garden with humans in the Garden of Eden. He calls out a family and actively works among them. The Spirit empowers men and women in the Old Testament to do work, to make things, to set people free, to fight battles. He literally wrestles with Jacob. He literally gets down into the earth and wrestles with a human. That's the activity of our God. That's how involved he gets. He is a wrestling match with one of his people who's being disobedient. And then God kind of, in some weird theological concept, loses and then breaks Jacob's hip and then runs off. Weird story, but demonstrative that God wants to be involved and is moving and working. In Deuteronomy, the running theme is 
You can expect God to be active in your future by looking at the activity of what he's done. And repeatedly it reminds them, he spoke to Moses in a burning bush. He moved in 10 commandments, 10 plagues to set you free. He parted seas, he guided you by fire, he spoke from a mountain, he provided manna, he provided doves, he's leading you into this new land and you can trust he will be as active in your future. And as we read a book nearly 3,000 years old, it still speaks to us today that we can trust God to be active in our future, active in our lives. A Trinitarian God is a God who is moving and working and active in his creation. We see the Son enter creation. We see the Spirit provided to live among us. And Scripture tells us he is continually moving by his church. It's tempting to pray prayers as if God is unmoved. And it's tempting because sometimes we pray and he doesn't respond in the way we thought he would or should. And so we think, okay, well, then I'm just not going to expect things. And then we start to pray prayers that sound like this. God, if it's your will, open this up, but will you speak into my heart that I can trust your will in this? Or God, as I pray this, I'm focusing on you shaping me to to submit to your will in this. And those are good prayers. Those are biblical prayers, submitting to God's will. But oftentimes the danger is we'll pray just those prayers. And we stop praying the prayer that says, God, there is a war and rumors of war on our planet We ask that you would get involved, bring peace to where there is chaos, bring healing to where there is vulnerability, stop wars, end chaos, bring peace, be active in our world. It may stop us from praying prayers during a global pandemic where millions have died to say, God, will you end the death that is happening? God, will you heal those who are sick? God, will you give us healing emotionally, relationally, physically? We should submit to God's will, absolutely. But if anything, Scripture shows us about the nature of our God is, he is active and moving, and he wants us to pray to him as a God who is active and moving in our world still today. Historically, there are two ways that we understand God as three in one. One is called the the psychological understanding, and that is God's essence. This is who he is. The other is the active relational view. And that is that God is three persons. It's hard for me to do this with my hand. Yeah, three persons always moving towards each other. And that that is his very nature. From the beginning of time, they're moving towards each other. And even today, they're moving towards each other. God is actively relational. And so he creates a church by his spirit through the resurrection of Jesus That is to be actively relational. Like the Spider-Man meme, where all three are pointing at each other. This is the goal of us as a church, to be pointing at each other. You, you're the best. No, you're the best. No, you are great. No, I love you. No, I love you. We all love each other and are pooling into this reality. The love in the church is an active love is an act of love choosing to move towards people who may not be like me, prefer like me, or may not be trustworthy like me or God in my mind, but that we choose to actively move towards each other. Matthew 6, 10. 
Jesus teaches us to pray this way, this active way. He says, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Son teaches us about the Father's kingdom. The Father's kingdom and will is for heaven and earth to be in order as one. The Spirit helps bring that order to heaven and earth through us, which means all of God is actively working right now for the redemption and the healing of our world. All of God is working to redeem this earth, to heal what is hurting, to restore what is broken, to love those who are vulnerable and lost. And the mechanism he chose is to do it through us. And that we would take on the mantle of his character and be people choosing relationship and actively moving in that relationship. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10, our final verse. Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 24. The author of Hebrews, speaking to a church under persecution, speaks to them this. Let us hold tightly, without wavering, to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promises. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Why is it so important as a church to spend four weeks on historic Christian Orthodox theology? Why is it so important that I understand the essence of God? I, ha I have Jesus, that's great, I'm good. Or I know God loves me, that's enough, I'm good. Why is it important I see God as three in one? Because in knowing that God is relational, it means that our call as his church, as his body and his hands and feet is uncompromisingly relational. It's not we pray the gospel and we preach the gospel and we move on. Relationship and the restoration of what it means to be human with each other is part of the gospel because it is part of our God who has breathed that breath of life into us and it is the essence of why Jesus came for relationship restored with the Father. And it's why he has given us his spirit so that we can love each other better than we humanly can. So that we can supernaturally forgive and supernaturally show grace and supernaturally give up our own desires, privileges, and wants for the sake of our community as a whole. It is why we study that God is active and moving always from eternity to eternity and in this earth because we as a church are called to be active. We are not called only to be in this room and to sing our songs that remind us of God's goodness. We are called to be active in this world as our God is active. 
the Holy Spirit, its role is a finisher, is a completer, is the role in God that is moving us forward to bring about the restoration of all things. And it lives in us. The author of Hebrews frames it as three things. He says, first thing, motivate each other to acts of love and goodness. There's really practical ways that we can do that as a church. With each other, encourage each other. Next service project coming up, awesome. Our February service project last Sunday, there was 30 of you out for it. Fantastic, phenomenal, what an awesome moment. It literally, Kate and I even said this, it felt like a little window for us of of heaven coming into the parking lot, seeing it filled with cars, walking into the room filled with church members, all working to feed the community that we are a part of. Remind us of like, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is the outpouring of the love God has given into us. And we will be doing activities like that every month. We'll be active in our community. We'll be active moving around Mercer County, spreading the love out here, showing that we are a church that is active by the Holy Spirit, moving and working in us. That you can, by the love of God filled in these services, filled in your small groups, encourage each other to be actively loving in your life actively loving your family, actively loving your coworkers, actively loving your neighbors, that they would be then drawn into the love of God and given an eternity with the God that's made them. To encourage each other to acts of love. You can do it. Go for it, man. Oh, you messed up. God is gracious. Get back on that horse and let's go again. Love again. Move again. Shake yourself. To gather together, he says. Don't forget that we are a church community. Whatever way we have to. For a year and a half, the only community we have is going to be virtually by these messages and emails and social media. Whatever, I'm going to do whatever we can that we can still gather together as a family. And now all the more as we move into hopefully a season of of the ending point of the pandemic to now communally and physically gather not just in this room, but in community events, in small groups once again, that we're sharing life together. And lastly, just simply encourage each other. Believe in the spirit moving in each other. Speak into someone. If if they're scared of joining a ministry, singing on stage, leading a small group, serving with kids, encourage each other. You can do it. Encourage each other to be moving forward in our lives. The author of Hebrews also says at another point, you were saved like 40 years ago and you've done nothing new in the last 40 years. Do something new, grow into the next stage. Encourage each other to be growing. What are you reading? Where are you in scripture right now? What's God speaking to you in silence and solitude? What did God speak to you at the altar this morning? What is God speaking to you in your life? Encourage each other to be active and relational and moving as the church. Our God is relational and our God is active. His church should be the same. It's messy for God. That's why there is a 1,400-page book about him messily putting us back together. And it will be messy in our church. It will. Just accept that and know that moving forward. 
But in that mess, it gives us the opportunity to love and to show grace and mercy and grow as one. If you'll join me in prayer this morning. God, in this moment, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that as we discover who you are, it opens us up to understand who we are. That the reason I desire to be loved and to give love is because the God who made me is a loving God. The reason a part of me yearns for other people and relationships is because my God is a God of relationships. We also know that community and relationships are messy. And Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to do what only you can do. Empower us, convict us, teach us to be like your son, able to forgive those who hurt us able to see those on the margins and reach out to them, able to speak truth in love, and to grow as a community, to grow in our depth of love, and to grow in the number of people we are able to love and bring into this family that you have created. You may be in the room this morning and you may not consider yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're wrestling with questions around that. I want to give you a chance this morning to take a first step of faith towards that end, to just offer a prayer this morning that says, God, I recognize my need for you and I recognize that in Jesus, you have made a pathway for me to know you. And I'll give you a chance to pray that with me this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, make this a moment of recommittal. God, in this moment, I need your presence. I need your forgiveness. I need your love. I believe in this moment that, God, you made me with a purpose, that you showed your value and care to me, crafting me carefully by your hands. But, Lord, I am sinful. And I confess, Lord, that I have made life about me. I have caused hurt and I have broken things and people and relationships. And I don't deserve relationship with you. But you sent your son in Christ Jesus to live on this earth as God and man in one flesh, to go to the cross in my place and bear the weight of my sin and shame and to die instead of me that on the third day, he rose from the grave. You rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, resurrected and eternal, and that by trusting in you, Jesus, I can live forever. I can be eternally in your presence. You gave your life for me. In this moment, I commit my life to follow you and know you, God, in Christ Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen and amen.